bitch is bad and bullshit. Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Erin. I'm Erica. And I'm Amy. And uh, Amy, it's uh, nice to have you with us. You went home and you had an adventure on your train ride back. Yeah, it was, uh, we're recording pretty late into the evening, but uh, I'm glad you guys waited for me. Yeah, it's, uh, I'm glad you're here. It may be late into the evening, but I am only on my first glass of wine. I probably could have just called in while I was on the train. Would have been really terrible sound. <laughs> would, would have made some. Oh use of God! That. Yeah, it would have been awful. Lengthy delays. Um, anyway, how were your weeks? Can't complain. Uh, we had uh, we went to the Broadbent Progress Summit. Yes, yeah. you guys went to the Progress Summit. I uh, ended up not being able to make it, unfortunately. I honestly, can I tell you, I was there for. Um, the reception and I was there on the Thursday and then I had to go back to work. So I was not there very long. I was there only just like in the morning. I would have loved to be there both days because there seemed like there was some interesting mm-hmm. stuff and I was following it on Twitter. But I was there for what ended up being, to me, a very valuable 15 minutes. Um, it was longer than that, but for 15 minutes of, of one particular presentation, can I tell you a quick mm-hmm. little Always. story about that? Um, so there was uh, started off after you know Ed Broadbent does his his welcome and, and his speech and you know nice to see that guy kicking. Uh, they had um, like a series of presentations called like front lines uh, like dispatches from the front yeah so it was the first panel so the first panel but it was in a panel it was like mini speeches kind of consecutively together oh, okay so it seemed like it would be a panel but fortunately it was not um, it was just kind of a bit of a different format and one of the speakers her name is uh, Carlene Crother. She's from Chicago. She's a queer black uh, activist who does a lot of like prison, prison abolition work um, in Chicago talking about that work. And she had this very like great speech and, and talking specifically about, um, you know, the, the movement to change, um, uh, I guess, like a- activism around folks who are in pre, um, like pre-hearing, pre-trial detention who can't post bail and, and mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Um, and towards the end of her speech, she gave this, she kind of, I don't know where it came from, but out of nowhere, she was like, the front lines of Chicago are the front lines of Gaza. The front lines of Chicago are the front lines of Hebron. Front line of Chicago is the front line of Ramallah. Front line of Chicago is the front line of Palestine. Front line of Chicago is the front line of Cape Town. I was just like, whoa, what is happening? Because you would ne- I would never have expected to hear mm-hmm. that on that kind of a platform. It was like <laughs> very, and like, there is a lot of great black Palestinian solidarity activism, but just like, you never hear about it in Canada and you would never hear about it in like, you know, proper places like the Progress Summit, mm-hmm. where they're just kind of like putting it on a show to like be very accessible, really, yeah. is how it feels like. So I was kind of like tearing up. I went back to work and my colleague Omar was like, I have to tell you something, like, where are you? He's like trying to track me down. And I guess what happened was he was a little bit bitter because last year at the NDP convention, the whatever, the head of the Broadband Institute, Rick Smith, was one of the assholes, you may remember me talking about this, was one of the people in the hallways essentially trying to put the kibosh on the Palestine mm. motion and was like really very loud and very... Um, hurtful in the way he conducted himself like that whole day. I heard that that is his like yeah his modus operandi. Yeah a little bit bullying but like it was very like you know 
very much wanting to be in control of the situation and the message and it was it was very uncool and so omar and i had ranted about that for a while anyway so omar went through the list of all the progress summit speakers about a month ago mm-hmm. and to see if any of them had any connection to palestine and the only person he found who had a connection was Carling Crothers. Mm-hmm. And apparently she has traveled to the, the West Bank and to Gaza with Mark Lamont Hill, who we've also talked yep. about on this yep. podcast, doing the Black and Palestinian solidarity yep. work. Um, she's, like, yeah, traveled there, done teach-ins, like, all this sort of stuff. Um, and so he emailed her and asked her, told her, look, this is the deal with the Broadbent Institute. This, you're going to the progress I mean, I'm not saying you shouldn't go, but if you get the chance, if you don't mind talking about your experiences in Palestine with the organizers, no way. or like kind of like maybe Good just like him. hinting at it, just like you know, it would be really nice if you could. And I and that's it. He sends he sends this email, and I shit you not, 15 minutes after she finishes her speech, that was a, that email was a month ago. Yes. 15 minutes after she finishes her speech, she emails him. And says, hey, Omar, I took your words to heart. I, instead of just talking about it, I worked it into my speech. Awesome. Like, thank you for your work. Yay, Omar, shout out. Yay. Amazing. That was just such, like, you know, that's some real solidarity right there for her to, like, take that, like, time and, like, you know. I I keep saying black and, black solidarity with, um, with, uh, Palestinians and and, and that movement is, is quite deep. Oh, for sure. And mm-hmm. it was just so touching to see it, like, and, and I, it's and just it makes, that now you're seeing uh, it in non-black like, really spaces. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I'm, I really hope that, like, fucked up Rick Smith's day. I hope he's, like, I've not heard great <laughs> things about him, to be honest. Like, and it, like, it's, which is, which to me is disappointing that you would be such a progressive center and have, um, mm. somebody at the top there who is that alienating to communities of color and other marginalized communities. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I'm like, okay, so if, like basically how different are you from like a liberal or con- well, conservative? Well, and it's just like this idea that you have to have, like, you, you have to be controlled and whatever. And I just love that they're, they had, um, you know, an unapologetic queer plaque presenter mm. being like, I'm not going to stick to your script the spoken or unspoken script that you expect of me. Right. And I'm going to, you know, decolonize this space in this, like, mm-hmm. very, like, real way and, and naming, you know, naming apartheid <coughs> for what it is and, right. and, and all that. So, I don't know. I just thought that was kind of cool. And what was Omar's reaction? Oh, he was thrilled. He was just <laughs> himself. It was so giddy. It was, like, very touching. The whole Aww. thing was just so nice. I was like, but you're so creative. Like, I would never have thought to do that. Like, I'm, I'm almost, like, too, like, cynical into inaction sometimes, like, a little uh-huh. bit. Obviously, like, not enough not to talk about it on this podcast, but, like, enough <laughs> not, to, not to think creatively to, like, reach out to people. Like, and it just kind of inspired me to you think know a bit more about how do you, how to make inroads with, with folks and, and to, to reach out even when things seem bleak and, like, you know, just talking, like, just talking and, and making connections in communities that you wouldn't otherwise think to and, it's the audacity of the expectation of being heard. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. that, like, we probably all need to um, exercise that more regularly. Yeah. But, yeah, I hear I hear what you're saying. Like, you know, sometimes you're just like, well, you know, it is what it is. And it, it, it's tiring. It's yeah. exhausting, yeah. right? Yeah, so sure. I totally hear you. I did not have that experience. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I wish I had stayed for that. Um, I... 
saw, I saw, okay, first of all, I want to say that um, I, what I noticed was that the crowd, the people who were there were pretty awesome. Like, they were, there were so many cool people. There were cool people, people I knew from Twitter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People who were just. You know, there I was, think that's the best part, like yeah. getting to connect and have community. Yeah, and and meet these people in real life, and and I felt like everybody was a certain kind of shade of progressive, and was at least open to hearing, you know, <coughs> uh, like you said, the um, you know, from from like the black solidarity with Palestine, and and uh, you know, a black queer. Who came from Chicago and talked about organizing and 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 stuff like that? Because I think what these places need to do more of is advocacy work and mm-hmm. activism, because they're too corporate for their own good. They want to make change, but they don't want to ruffle feathers. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, well, what the fuck is the point? Mm-hmm. But then if you had a black queer person or 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 somebody or even like an Omar heading up that organization, it would be a different organization. So I feel like, but you see the change from like some of the folks who are around now. Like, yes, yes, yes. So over the over from the last couple of years, for sure. But here's my problem: there's still too many all white panels. I feel like when the panels were um, mixed, uh, it was it was in a within a specific context. So for example, for example, there was um, a migration panel that was that was quite diverse. Um, or if you're talking specifically about issues that affect people of color, then okay, they had yeah, some people yeah, of color yeah. up there. But why couldn't you have people of color talking about digital strategy? Right. Mm-hmm. Like, why couldn't you have people of color doing, um, you know, doing data? And there's there's a dude I follow on Twitter who's like right here in Ottawa that they could have asked who who was who was that's his. Yeah, and like, why is that important? It's important because um, there is a thing called Black Twitter, and like, they consume Twitter and the media, and they have a different digital presence, and you have to be able to speak to them in a way that makes sense to them, that they're not just going to laugh you off the side of the road. Yeah, and why invite Kevin Chan of Facebook, who is just going to blow smoke up my ass, and Susan Delacroix. I told you. No, no, no. I didn't go. Okay. Because I was like, I only have a limited amount of time. I don't want that time to be spent having smoke blown up my ass. Mm. Like, keep your corporatism somewhere else. Keep Mm -hmm. that for the conservatives, okay? Mm -hmm. I do find it really strange that progressive organizations would have Facebook, Facebook Canada, whatever, on any platform speaking as if they have any legitimacy to speak. Right. And, like... Yeah, and I mean we'll get to that. Today, oh yeah, but the other the other part is too that um, I, David Coletto was presenting. Well, for first of all, I don't like that there was no question and answer period. Mm. Um, second of all, David Coletto, who is from Abacus Data, was presenting data, and he's like, "Yeah, we broke the data down by sex, by region, by this, by that," but there's no mention of race. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, well, fuck! I can't take your 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 data seriously mm-hmm. if you're not if you're not if you're not taking um, race and using it as a variable, then you're 
like unknown error variable is painted like it's not like you can't ignore that and, yeah, and especially because there is a lot of when you go riding by riding in this country like race is a huge factor and you're we have our first election with the racialized like leader of a political party exactly and i want to know what people's views on that <coughs> i think it's Absolutely. important for us as a country as a society yep. to know what the breakdown of that is absolutely mm-hmm. absolutely and i i was just like okay so basically i shouldn't listen to any of these results so then i laughed because <laughs> i was like i only have a limited amount of time i'm not spending it on you <laughs> all right so one quick thing is i want to remind people that we have merch yes. uh, at redbubble so redbubble.com and you can search us bad and bitchy um, no plus sign. It's the word and just so we're clear. <laughs> yeah, because I spent a whole like two days telling people no, it's the plus. Yeah, so check that out. We've got a whole whole line, two different designs. Um, we still have to place our own order. We should do it before you go on vacation, Amy. Absolutely, before you go on I vacation. I actually almost did it yesterday, and then I was like, oh, wait, I should probably figure out, like, timing of this delivery situation. Yeah. yeah. Um, also, just want to give a quick shout-out to our new patrons. Um, if you want to support the podcast, patreon.com slash badandbitchy. Um, yeah. So, uh, so that we can continue doing this good work. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, so this week in feminism, we're going to start off talking about these social media platforms, uh, and uh, specifically Facebook, and uh, their new white supremacist policy. (laughs) So last week, Facebook announced that it will be banning posts that praise white nationalism and white separatism from both Facebook and Instagram. In a statement, the company said that based on recent conversations with members of civil society and academics, who are experts in race relations, okay, Um, the company has concluded that white nationalism and separatism cannot be meaningfully separated from white supremacy and organized hate groups. No fucking kidding. Uh, So when someone tries to post content that's determined to be nationalist or separatist in nature, the platform will direct them to a nonprofit that helps people leave hate groups. Um, So the decision from Facebook comes... Uh, A year after Motherboard, which is Vice's tech vertical, reported that although Facebook banned white supremacy on its platform, it still explicitly allowed white nationalism and white separatism. So after backlash from civil rights groups and historians who say that there is no difference between the ideologies, Facebook has finally decided to ban all three. So what does this look like in practice? Well, specifically, Facebook will now ban content That includes explicit praise, support, or representation of white nationalism or separatism. So that includes phrases such as, I am a proud white nationalist, and immigration is tearing this country apart. White separatism is the only answer will now be banned. Implicit and coded white nationalism and white separatism will not be banned immediately, in part because the company has said it's harder to detect and remove. In the background, remember bots are doing this work. Yeah. In the background, Facebook will continue using some of the same tactics it uses to surface and remove content associated with ISIS, Al Qaeda, and other terrorist groups to remove white nationalists, separatists, and supremacist content. 
This includes content matching, which algorithmically detects and deletes images that have been previously identified to contain hate material and will include machine learning and artificial intelligence. So uh, any immediate thoughts on this? You know, is this a good step as Facebook seeks to find ways to identify more coded posts? Does it go far enough? How could it be improved? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great first step, honestly. I mean, but it's obviously, it's so long overdue. Um, and there's no question that, like, for Christchurch and the response um, publicly to that massacre, there would not have been this this action on the part of Facebook. And oh, I, it's just, like, really devastating that that's the, like, threshold of, like, interest. Mm -hmm. And it's only because there's, uh, you know, possibly a monetary or soon-to-be regulatory fallout, right? Like, Facebook is preempting um, what legislators are probably finally now also contemplating, which is how do we regulate these spaces um, and enforce um, hate speech laws and discrimination on these, like in, in laws around discrimination on these platforms. And, and so, you know, Facebook, I'm, I'm sure the Facebook thinking, the, the organizational thinking is we want to set the parameters ourselves before we get regulated to death. And, and also that have a response <coughs> to the regulation. You don't need to regulate us we have our own practices in place and those practices are adequate and they've been widely, you know, accepted or well received. And so that's, that's the game that they're playing. So it's, you know, it's not a benevolent act on their part. Um, you can kind of see like why the, the, you know, why the wheels turned the way that they did. Uh, I just made the mistake of uh, looking on Facebook or sorry, on Twitter to see how people are quote unquote reacting uh, to this. Oh, Cause God. I have like not done that um, in terms of, you know, Anyway, so it's a lot of, you know, why is there, why are non-white hate groups not being policed in the same way, you know, and, and you have, um, you know, Stefan uh, Mulner or whatever his name is, that like trashy, um, you know, Canadian personality, whatever his, his deal is or wherever the fuck he crawled out of, you know, the Nation of Islam <laughs> is a black nationalist group. Are there no Jewish or Hispanic or East Asian nationalists? Oh, and also, like, the fact that you don't know the answer is because there isn't, uh, and to the same degree that there is causing, like, destruction and, like, race, and, and actually, like, racist acts of murder. They're not walking into churches, synagogues, well, and mosques killing people. So, mm -hmm. my initial thoughts is uh, too little, too late. Uh, these groups have proliferated on Facebook and YouTube and Instagram and there have been many many um, outlets that have talked about especially Instagram and how that's becoming more um, more conducive to far-right nationalist posts and Facebook has been people have talked about this for years it's not like they didn't know and that's what's just so frustrating about this whole thing. You knew, you ignored it, and you decided that it wasn't worth your time or money or whatever. <coughs> and I want to bring in, um, does anybody here listen to the Rico podcast? Sometimes, yeah. Okay. I, depending on who the guest is. Yeah. So I'm like a bit of a Kara Swisher fan. And only because I think 
first of all, like she's one of those women who just gives no fucks who you are. Mm. She will she will ask you the questions that need to be asked. And what more could you ask, really? Anyway, so she interviewed Mark Zuckerberg back in October of last year. So she's like, let's talk about Infowars. Um, and he says, quote, there are really two core principles at play here. There's giving people a voice so that they can express their opinions. Then there's keeping the community safe, which I think is really important. The approach that we've taken to false news is not to say you can't say something wrong on the internet. I think that would be too extreme. Everyone gets things wrong. And if we were taking down people's accounts when they got a few things wrong, then that would be a hard world for giving people a voice and saying that you care about that. Which is the dumbest thing because it's like he doesn't understand what she's saying. Like he doesn't. He doesn't. He says, well, so, yeah, there's a difference between the individual and organizations like InfoWars, which is like well, it, intentionally people misconstrue so that they can make this free speech argument. Sure. Right. But, but like in terms of like, let's say vac- the vaccination argument, like that's demonstrably false mm-hmm. and like that, you know, is backed up by science. So it's yeah. not as though yeah, someone's yeah, oh, saying absolutely. like. It's it's not as though someone was saying, oh, I had X experience. Mm-hmm. They're saying X is wrong and causes Y, right. which is, like, just a falsehood and, like, a provable falsehood. Whereas, like, saying, like, oh, um, so-and-so said whatever quote, and it's just, like, a misquote, which, like, isn't wrong. It's just not entirely accurate. Well, but I think, too, it's it's the vehicles like that people are using, right? So whether it's InfoWars as an, as an organization, you know, that looks and appears as, like, an official page and it's as a news organization or news-esque body, like, it lends legitimacy. And same with Facebook groups and, and other, like, pages and all of that, um, as opposed to an individual's wall opining, like, personal opinion, right? Yeah, there's a difference. And so, you know, she's like, well, for example, Sandy Hook didn't happen. It's not a debate. It's false, Mm -hmm. which is what you were saying, Mm -hmm. Aaron. And he says, I agree that it's false. And then he says something else. And then he says, I'm Jewish. And there's a set of people who deny that the Holocaust happened. I find that deeply offensive. But at the end of the day, I don't believe that our platform should take that down because I think there are things that different people get wrong. I don't think that they are intentionally getting it wrong. That which is completely misguided. I think like one when I heard this whole thing happen late last year, I was like incensed about it because like it's just so stupid because like very obviously they're getting it wrong on purpose because that's what they quote-unquote believe because it reinforces a, a belief system. And can we just say that some people just don't give a fuck if it's right or wrong? Mm-hmm. There's a whole industry that was born out of, of fake news and clicks. And this is the thing that I think that, especially Facebook, is, not, is trying to duck and hide from. Their whole business model is based on clicks. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. the things that are going to get the most clicks are not necessarily, quote unquote, the best. The best meaning meaning the most factual. 
or the best story that's told. It's going to be the shit that gets people's blood up and gets their blood boiling so that they can click and and reinforce their own ideas. Mm -hmm. So they created this whole problem based on their own business model, which is just to sell ads. Well, and, and that's why they're not incentivized to do anything differently until it becomes, you know, a cost to their business not to do anything, which mm-hmm. is what's happened now. But I mean, it, it does betray like Mark Zuckerberg's true opinions that like not, you know, a handful of months ago, that was his view that he was, you know, quite ready to espouse mm-hmm. to anyone who would listen like, and, and you know, I mean, it's, he, he speaks as if he thinks he has some sort of moral high ground in the way that a lot of free, free speechists, uh, you know, think that their position is. Yeah, and so basically, and since this announcement, Zuckerberg has come out with a different, I, I don't know if it's a different position, but um, clarifying, I guess, the position of Facebook that um, <coughs> they, they are looking for <coughs> regulation from government as, the, I guess, the next step. Yeah, but I mean, watch, like, watch for that because I guarantee you they will be writing it. Huh. They will. That is exactly it. I guarantee you, there's no time that industry has asked for regulation and not been the ones drafting it. That. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, so let's go back. Oh, let me see. Let me see what. So the Guardian had an article. The article came out on March second of mm-hmm. this year. Facebook has targeted politicians around the world, including former UK Chancellor George Osborne, promising investments and incentives while seeking to pressure them into lobbying on Facebook's behalf against data privacy legislation, an explosive new leak of internal Facebook documents has revealed. So they have lobbied politicians across Europe in a strategic operation to head off quote, overly restrictive GDPR legislation. That's legislation that passed, I think, last year, having to do with privacy and data. Um, uh, They've used uh, Sheryl Sandberg's feminist memoir lead-in to, quote, bond with female European commissioners it viewed as hostile. And they have threatened to withhold investment from countries unless they supported or passed Facebook-friendly laws. But also, wasn't there like a sister story that said that they also lobbied Canadian, the Canadian government or yeah. Canadian officials for yeah. the same thing? Yeah. Yeah. And guess what? We're going into an election year. Yeah. So I don't know what kind of bullshit they think that we're on. Um, to be like, to be honest, Facebook. Facebook is a dirty fucking company, to be honest. To pretend that Mark Zuckerberg wants fair legislation is a joke. Yeah, so getting back to like the initial policy that Facebook has launched and the banning of this white supremacist, white nationalist uh, content, they direct the users to a nonprofit, a nonprofit that was started by two individuals who were part of a hate group and it kind of, I guess they, they give uh, people the opportunity to learn from them Mm -hmm. and learn about these types of views. Is this like a good, a good thing? Like, I'm not sure how I feel about it. It seemed, when I first read it, it seemed, it seemed weird to me Mm -hmm. um, because 
like a website isn't gonna just like make you change your views you have like yeah I mean it, the whole thing is a little bit tricky because on there's a different schools of thoughts right like there's a lot of people who are willing to say like those folks were radicalized online so there must be a way to reach them online in, in some way and I and I think that might be true for some individuals at the same time and, and this is sort of the same argument that people have around you know what are the motivators behind people who are who would vote for Trump and have these racist views and you know there's that view on the among some people on the left that you know it's economic instability has like caused this and of course you know a lot of people face economic instability and don't resort to race like to have racist views violent views white nationalist views so there is more to it than that um that why people are susceptible so i don't I, you know it's not something that can kind of be written off uh, or or sorry like dealt with in it like dealt with overnight mm -hmm. i mean it is that part of such like so much systemic and institutional racism that allows um, those views to be held and to not be um, challenged in any real way and I think it's going to be more than you know a, a support group per se but you know at the same time depending on where people are at in the, in terms of their white nationalist views there are people like there are arguments to say it is a little bit cult-like there is a little bit of an indoctrination mm. and there are some maybe tactics to kind of bring people out of it that's not to say those people would suddenly then become not racist because I think those views probably are like fundamentally theirs. Um, so it, I, I mean, like there's a spectrum on which a person could like could have those beliefs, right? So, but here's know. the thing: let's not pretend that the the way these companies are constructed don't amplify that and and sure. kind of like YouTube is one of the worst because mm -hmm. YouTube. Uh, you're, you know, you're watching like whatever Simon says, and then all of a sudden <laughs> you get like this ISIS or this like white supremacy video, like what the fuck? Yeah. Because that's the way their algorithm works. YouTube all also has a porn problem, like not a porn problem, sorry, a pedophile problem. And and that's how the point is, is that that's how these these people also get exposed to when they're viewing something that doesn't necessarily have to do with the mm -hmm. other. And this content is being promoted because a lot of people either view it or maybe it's viewed in your region or whatever, and it gets pumped out to people. And that's the thing, like the algorithm mm -hmm. itself is a problem. I mean, but the, I think that's the argument for why removing that stuff will be beneficial for yeah. the spread of it. Mm -hmm. But it is, but you know, I mean, this, these things will find a way, right? I mean, the I, like at the very beginning of the Christchurch massacre, the Facebook's response was like, we're, we're going to pull the videos of the shooting down, but we can't, but there are so many copies, we can't do it necessarily mm -hmm. or perfectly or right away. Um, and, and, you know, these views will spread in the same way on people's personal profiles. Yeah. Like people will find other ways to share and disseminate those views, making their accounts, you know, open to public and not using pages or not using groups, mm -hmm. um, or, or meeting elsewhere in other parts, on other parts of the internet, other platforms, right? So, I mean, none of this is, is absolute. The idea of, of whether or not, you know, a not-for-profit, I mean, I think that that's, you know, I, I, I don't know what works or what hasn't. Like so, it's, it's, yeah. Fuck. Yeah. what if we just directed them directly into watching The Green Book? <laughs> <Ayo>. <laughs>
Because the other green book solves racism. Yeah, absolutely. Like, it's basically the same thing. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I'm, I'm skeptical about all this sort of stuff, too. Because it, it does have a feeling like that. And it does also <coughs> kind of, there is a... Yeah, I mean, I think we just have to be really careful about the types of responses people have to how do we, quote-unquote, help these people. One is that, like, as I said, the economic intervention argument that a lot of people are on the left in this election year are trying to say in Canada anyway is an answer. You know, these people have economic vulnerabilities, and if we don't give them options and jobs, we'll continue to be radicalized, which I don't fully buy. But those things can be mutually exclusive. Totally. You can still have economic security totally. and be a fucking Totally, racist. and that's why I think that's kind of a bullshit you know argument. And the other one's the ableist one, which is that people are, are crazy, quote-unquote. Yeah. I would never, like, use that, but you, you know what I mean. And kind of trying to diagnose, like, diagnose people or... or, or they think this way like because there's something wrong with and, Which is also completely bullshit. Um, well, and again, ableist is... and mis, mis, mis uh, characterizes folks mm. with disabilities as well. But, yeah, sorry, Erica. The first one was just classes because sure, yeah. basically mm-hmm. what... And white people do this all the time. They pretend that racism is only a problem with their lower class cousins. Mm. And, you know, Mm -hmm. the whole education, like, remember that whole generation of people who were like, education, um, like, fixes racism? Yeah. If you look at any poll, the poll always has data of the views of college educated people, Mm -hmm. which is basically a class argument. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and it also just ignores the fact that the people who disproportionately feel economic pressure and vulnerability are racialized people, and they are not resorting to this harsh mm-hmm. behavior. So that you know, that's like a real puzzler uh, for that. You know, I think that kind of undermines that argument. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, but you know, are there other types of social intervention? I like to think that there might, like, there might be in the sense that, like, you know, a difference as community, early childhood education, like, like, legitimately, like, rebuilding a a society that is not, you know, what, like, a white supremacist society, which is kind of the society we're in, like, until people accept that, you know, and restructure, like, this is, like, systemic things that allow these views to take hold, like, Mm -hmm. they're, it's kind of all pointless, but Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I don't know. So what are the risks in this approach by Facebook? You know, I, I see two things. So mm-hmm. one is that the language on the platforms by the people who hold these views becomes increasingly coded oh, yeah. so that it can only make sense to those who know what it means and is otherwise nonsensical to others. The second is that these people are further alienated off these mainstream platforms and mm-hmm. pushed to more and more extreme platforms like 4chan, 8chan, um, a lot of them go use gaming websites mm-hmm. um, and gaming pla- video game platforms um, like Fortnite to have these conversations too. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's good for this preventing this further spread, so that people, you know, like I think if you're already part of this community, you can you'll you'll know about those other sites. Yeah, but so like maybe the mainstream, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. It might it might kind of hinder that. You're totally right. I, the part about decoding just made me think of like all the many lost hours people have spent trying to figure out what the okay, whether the okay symbol was mm-hmm. actually a white supremacist symbol or not, and, or like an alt right, you know, like signifier. And I, I'm pretty sure it is. I'm pretty sure we've established that, but people are still like, is it though? Isn't it? It's just the okay symbol. Yeah. <laughs> like the hand gesture. Do you know what I mean? So um, <clears throat> I'm here for deplatforming. 
there is an argument by people saying that, oh, well, you know, you'll never stop people from thinking these things. Okay, why do we want to cure these people? I don't want to cure them. I just don't want them to become a threat to my life. Is this too much to ask? Why do we ask? I don't give a shit about them believing that, um, you know, what they believe. I give a shit when mainstream media and these tech platforms amplify them and give them um, legitimacy by having them on panels, on their shows, by interviewing them, by not doing the real work that they need to do, which is to push back. Like, that reporter with the fake Goldie interview was horseshit. And I was just, because, and that's the thing. I don't give a shit about curing them. But deplatforming works. It works. Alex Jones is basically crying like a little baby right now in a court case because he's been deplatformed. <coughs> Milo Yanabla, whatever. I, I don't give a shit to learn his name. Uh, like, he he is, what, $2 million in debt now? Oh, yeah. Because he can't make, because people's lives. He can't make money off of this. Yeah. He can't mm-hmm. make money off of it. So, you know, this whole, oh, well, if you, if you deplatform them, then they'll just scurry into little places. Fine, let them do it. I don't give a shit. I don't give a shit. Mm-hmm. To me, it's up to wherever there's light and they are, you need to shine that light on them and make them scurry. That is my point. All right. So now we're going to move on to completely something different. Um, so climate change and climate related disasters are increasing in frequency and severity. Um, but the thing is, is that insurance, which is the thing that protects people against, you know, pay, paying extreme costs for in the, in the recovery and response efforts, um, is now becoming too expensive too. So insurers have warned that climate change could make cover for ordinary people unaffordable after the the world's largest reinsurance firm blamed global warming for $24 billion of losses in the California wildfires. So the firm Munich Ray, um, their chief climatologist, Ernst Rauch, told The Guardian that these costs could soon be widely felt with premiums rising, uh, premium rises already under discussion in vulnerable, vulnerable, vulnerable parts of California. Wow, I really can't talk today. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Cracks knuckles. He says, quote, if the risk of, from wildfires, flooding, storms, or hail is increasing, then the only sustainable option we have is to adjust our risk prices accordingly. In the long run, it might become a social issue. Affordability is so critical because some people on low and average incomes in some regions will no longer be able to buy insurance. So the lion's share of California's 20 worst forest blazes since the 1930s have occurred in this millennia. And in years characterized by abnormally high temperatures in the summer and exceptional dryness between May and October. Uh, Wetter and more humid winters spurred new forest growth, which became tinder dry in heat wave conditions that preceded these wildfires. 
Uh, these premiums are also being adjusted in regions facing an increased threat from severe convective storms, which hold an energy and severity primed by global warming. And these include parts of Germany, Austria, France, uh, parts of Italy, and the U.S. Midwest. So what can we do about protecting against these types of disasters? Like, I'm not necessarily talking about on like the climate change aspect, although that is one area, but I think also kind of on the insurance and preventative measures area. Um, I tweeted about this this week and, you know, I was in New Orleans uh, this time last year and just driving around the city and talking to people, they're like, uh, in order for them to get flood insurance, they have to completely renovate their houses. They have to elevate their houses, in some instances, more than five feet above ground level um, so that they can get flooded, only qualify for like base flood insurance. Mm -hmm. But those renovations to their houses are just so costly and the insurance is still costly. And so they're like, well, I can either go into debt, you know, renovating my house and raising it so I can get insurance or I can hope, cross my fingers, that we don't get another storm and another flood mm -hmm. um, that I'll have to just like lose mm -hmm. everything. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, is that in 50 some years, like New Orleans isn't going to exist because of coastal flooding, in case mm -hmm. you're wondering. Mm -hmm. I learned that at a conference. Yeah. Um, I mean, wow. if you nationalize insurance, and put the cost on the government, maybe it'll incentivize some climate action. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, Not a bad idea. Are you, no. Amy, are you this, a socialist? Yeah. <laughs> Spoiler alert, yeah. Um, I mean, just like the whole idea of insurance is kind of bullshit to begin with. And I feel like, you know, even things like relocation costs that, that would be born out of a natural disaster, there is a societal benefit in like us absorbing that, um, like collect in a collective way, um, and it, it it makes absolutely no sense that folks who are more well off and can afford to be insured have greater protections. Like it it just widens the the like poverty gap. Like I, I think like insurance is part should be part of how we calculate uh, wealth disparity. Mm -hmm. because it, it's a huge like it's a huge it not only do the rich have more money they have like greater ways of protecting their money right well and, and the fact assets. that like a lot of people who live in flood zones in particular mm -hmm. likely don't know that they're in flood zones um and those areas tend to be poorer mm -hmm. so you know you're just further targeting these marginalized communities yeah, for sure especially because like they can't have a retain a fancy retaining wall, wall or whatever well, isn't that why where they are where they are? Because they're poor and racialized? Mm -hmm. Like, that's exactly how it's set up. So, this is not, unfortunately, not surprising. But, thank goodness we're talking about climate change in, like, real tangible ways. I find that what we've talked about, what the discussion about climate change has been kind of... It's been... It's not like, it's not tangible. Well, it's because it was hijacked uh, over whether or not climate change exists. And we wasted like 20 years debating that. And now we have to like, you know, we've lost that time. 
I mean, we still are debating that in a lot of spaces. It's really pathetic. I feel like there's no debate. <laughs> like, that's where I am. I don't, I don't know why. Why are we listening to these people? I don't know. But, mm-hmm. like, I think that people who are full of, white people who are full of shit are given too much time to spew their shit. Sorry. I, they are. Like, I, I, the, the effects I found, I saw this tweet um, coming from you, Aaron, and I immediately was like, whoa, because to me, like, first of all, the way we talk about climate change needs to be more intersectional. Because we really need to talk about environmental racism. Which we don't in Canada And at we all. don't. Or zoning. Or anything like that. Because where people live is especially racialized. At the Progress Summit, um, I was talking to somebody who uh, was who's running as an NDP um, for the federal election in Toronto. And he brought up the segregation of the city. And those are structural zoning laws and housing laws that put racialized people or poor people who are usually racialized and immigrants in harm's way when it comes to these issues. Because like you said, they can't afford a retaining wall for their individual property if they even own property. You know, I mean... The way we have just talked about this issue has been very exclusive. <coughs> it's been very exclusionary. Mm-hmm. And when and it's very much upper class white people who are who are talking about it, but not in the way that we need to talk about it. Yeah, and in Canada, um, the people who bear the brunt of this damage is a lot of indigenous communities, mm-hmm. right? Because they're the ones who are living um, closer to land, or sorry, not, of course they're living on land. Uh, they're living closer to, uh, water sources. And these are the ones who, you know, in the event of a severe rainstorm, um, or, you know, some other type of event, um, they're the, particularly also like a fire, particularly in Canada in particular, um, you know, they're the ones who have to flee their homes, who don't have necessarily access to the information that, you know, more urban and suburban Canadians would have because they don't necessarily have the the access to the same resources like the internet mm-hmm. um, in order to be able to figure out if they live on a floodplain. Um, but we just don't talk about that. We talk about, um, you know, helping Indigenous people um, build back their houses and more like, retroact- like retroactive um, decisions rather than proactive decisions. God forbid we can be actually proactive and make a decision and run with it in this country. Well, the thing is, is that, like, um, according to the Pew Charitable Trust, uh, they did a study in the States, and uh, the amount of charitable donations in, like, the phases of a natural disaster um, happen, obviously, at the response stage, so, like, immediately in the wake of a disaster, because... That's when it's the sexiest for people. That's when you get all of the Red Cross text message campaigns, etc. Um, the second most important or the most popular phase for funding is um, the recovery stage. So kind of further down the timeline uh, following the response. But 
the most important phase is the mitigation phase, which is pre-disaster. Mm-hmm. And by investing pre-disaster, you're mitigating the financial costs of the recovery and response because you've already invested in um, systems, infrastructure, and systems to alleviate the most severe damage. But people, people and governments are just struggling to find the cost benefit for them because it's just less sexy. Federal disaster money, particularly in America, definitely favors the rich. Mm-hmm. It doesn't uh, mm-hmm. favor poor people at all. There was a piece on that recently. NPR. Was it NPR? Got it right here. Oh, okay. (laughs) Do you have any quotes from it? Because that's interesting. Um, Let's see. In the mid and early... Nope. In the early and mid-20th century, fewer than 20% of U.S. counties experience a disaster each year. Today, it's about 50%. Wow. Crazy. So there was also some flood maps that were posted on Twitter last week about... You know, there's just so much snowfall, and so because of that, um, there's going to be flooding almost entirely across all of America. Wow. wow. And, like, some of the most severe flooding, particularly across the Midwest, again, into those poorer states um, where they just don't have the infrastructure, and it's going to be the worst flooding they've seen in decades. Oh yeah. Yeah, so that's... Anyway, anything else you want to say about climate change, Erica? Well. (laughs) I knew. (laughs) So, now, in in talking about premiums and, um, you know, financial costs and and so on and so forth, um, the Bank of England, I saw this today, Uh, will soon spell out how it wants banks, insurers, and investment companies to manage the financial risk from climate change. Governor Mark Carney said on Thursday, if you will remember, Mark Carney used to be governor of the Bank of Canada. The central bank under Carney has been vocal in highlighting climate change's potential impact on the financial sector, such as the impact of more frequent floods on mortgages and insurance or new emissions rules on fossil fuel investments. Companies will be expected to embed fully the consideration of climate change risks into governance frameworks, including at the board level, Carney said, in a speech at a conference on sustainable finance hosted by the European Commission in Brussels. Yeah. Okay. All right. So stay tuned for Rent and Receipts. Now we're moving on to rant and receipts where we each uh, rant about something. Cool. Well, I just want to redirect your attention to a um, little thing that was sort of circulating on Twitter, um, provide a little bit of context about this uh, dress code situation at the BC legislature. So I don't know if you saw that there was a picture of uh, journalists and staffers standing in the hall with their inappropriate attire, and it was literally just women in dress pants and dress shirts. And as it turns out, this is actually a, a legitimate debacle that's happening in the BC Ledge, um, where staffers are being told to put on jackets, over top their clothing, to wear slips under their dresses. I'm sorry, pardon? Yeah, exactly. I don't know what the fuck a slip is. <laughs> like, the thing, what I think about when I 
think of the word slip is like Spanx, and that shit's fucking expensive. It's like a hundred dollars. Spanx are a hundred dollars? Yeah. Fuck me. No. I, I mean, like a sl- like a slip, yeah. Go on. Anyway, I definitely <laughs> speak, so I don't know, but this is a legitimate thing that an adult person in a workplace said to another adult person in the workplace. Just super fucked up. Um, I, uh, it's affecting both staffers and journalists who've been reminded repeatedly now of this dress code. At one point they said there wasn't a dress code. Now it turns out that there is. Um, and so folks have been showing up kind of protesting by wearing short sleeves, even with their shoulders covered, cap sleeves, all of those things have been said to be quote unquote against this dress code. The dress code is essentially women have to wear professional attire, which could mean literally anything. Um, meanwhile, you know, men can, can also, can wear kilts and whatever else, but it's not men whose attire is being policed. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's just really kind of baffling that this thing sort of exists. Um, you know, it's been said, um, and I mean, it's been put to the speaker and to, um, you know, different actors in the legislature to review, uh, the dress code. And it looks like they all do that. They say it's a gender neutral policy. Um, that said layered clothing and covered shoulders were appropriate for women um, and men uh, are allowed to wear kilts if they choose to which is just like I mean like that's not exactly a gender neutral policy how is that gender neutral and it's definitely not being policed in a gender neutral <laughs> way I wonder if those dudes have sex. no no like like how do you it's a kilt versus like you basically have to have to Wear a burqa. Sorry, can you imagine those men who wear kilts wearing also having to wear a slip? I mean, I did, and it's pretty funny. Could you imagine them going to purchase a slip? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, and that's cool. Like, men should get to wear kilts, and they, if they want to wear slips, they totally can. But it's not the men who are being singled out for Mm -hmm. what they wear, and I think like that's really the issue here. Um, what if the journalist who's covering this has a tweet thread about sort of the history of this, um, it's CTV reporter, um, Hinder Sajan, and she writes, um, you know, we often hear stories about women feeling invisible in the workplace, except when it comes to dress code. That's when it seems that women are more visible than men. Um, and she kind of reminds mm. us, you know, men can wear the same suit, switch up their ties and shirts, and no one would notice. Remember the story of the Australian broadcaster who wore the same suit for a year? I don't think a woman could get away with that. I'm not blaming the staff for enforcing the policy, although I will. Um, <laughs> I mean, the focus on what women wear goes beyond the BC ledge, and she sort of reminds us of some of the dress, uh, school dress code debates happening um, or issues um, in BC, mm-hmm. some specific ones. I know we talked about some on the pod, you know, um, high school girls being told that they can't wear bras, that they have to wear bras with certain shirts, can't wear certain shirts, can't wear Lululemons. Usually it's in the guise of it's distracting for their male colleagues, mm-hmm. right? Kind of this, this again, really, um, it, I mean, insulting to both men and women and everyone um, to, to say that you could be, like, so distracted that and sexualizing people in that way, which I think is bullshit. But, I mean, what's annoying about the BC legend, any professional workplace environment is this idea that what, what is professional yeah. and who gets to decide that. Yeah, I I feel like, and this is gonna make no sense, but like I almost feel would feel better if they were much more explicit about what that meant, because, like it seems kind of like they're all over the map. Like, okay, well you can't have sleeveless, but you also can't have cap sleeves, because the assumption with sleeveless is that like oh you have to cover your shoulders out of respect, 
okay, fine, but then what's wrong with cap sleeves? Sorry, my bicep is too too scary and sexual for you. Like, well, that do was you the want whole me just thing to wear Michelle Obama? Right? It's like she people were were telling her to cover up. She must have given them a a, a fuck you or something. But I don't understand this like even respect for whatever nonsense. Sure. Like, I mean, this this isn't. I mean, it's it's not a church. It's not like a yeah. You know, it's not a place of worship. It's which you know, and that's fine if you want to set those rules there. But to be like, yeah, a naked a naked arm is inherently sexual and Scandal. sexualized and scandalous. Is insulting to women and anyone really. It's mm-hmm. infa- it's infantilizing to think that. Yeah. Um, and I think it really does a lot of people a disservice. And I mean, and and again, it's something that is like I think we you look at attire now, professional attire. It is what people wear. Professional should mean, you know, and, and even whatever professional means, I don't even know what professional should mean because even, um, you know, clothing that you might think is unkempt or, uh, you know, in a, like slob, sloppy looking or whatever else is usually just a class exercise mm-hmm. of policing what people wear. So anytime that you have a dress code, I think it's, it's almost always going to result in either the dress code being discriminatory on its face or the dress code being applied in a discriminatory yeah. fashion. Absolutely. Um, the U.S. went through this in last year, I think 2018, like around this similar time, um, for the same thing where it was like, um, disres- quote unquote disrespectful to wear anything, but like, I want to say a blazer, but it could just be like covering your shoulders mm-hmm. in, um, the, uh, the congressional chambers. Um, and that was for Congress people and senators and reporters, um, and I think ultimately, like, they won and they can wear, like, short sleeves or bare shoulders or now, like, sheath dresses, sleeveless sheath mm-hmm. dresses. Um, but they're like, yeah, like, these rules are antiquated and completely mm-hmm. irrational. Um, I think it was also this week where there was a, a private school in the States won some court challenge that said that girls didn't have to be forced to wear skirts to mm-hmm. school anymore, which was a huge deal. Mm-hmm. I remember growing up when... My friends at private school, they got to wear skirts. Right. They were very excited because they're like, these skirts are the worst. Mm-hmm. But yeah, skirts just like mm-hmm. made their days. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing sexualized like a Catholic school skirt. Fuck, I know, right? <laughs> Wait, like, don't even give me well, and then there was some like some mom at, at, who like had a son at some Ivy League school wrote a letter to like the school newspaper as like a letter to the editor saying that young women on college campuses should not wear uh, leggings around because it's just sexualizing and heaven forbid the boys. What about the boys? That's so embarrassing for that kid. Right? Can you imagine? She's just like, mom? there's just no appropriate. You can see your whole bottom. <laughs> it's leaving nothing to the imagination. Bitch, listen, that shit's comfortable as fuck. It's comfortable, but also I feel like dress pants are also part of your, like, butt-hugging. Also, like, your butt is your butt. Sometimes your butt is going to show. <laughs> you know butts, I mean? are butts. butts are butts. <laughs> I don't like this. Some are protruding. I don't know what to tell you about I, I, it. I have to say. It's my biggest extremity. Say, In the winter, it's always cold. <laughs> First thing to get frostbite is my ass. What? Yeah, my ass gets cold, too, actually. It's true. Yeah, yeah it does. You know, what, what kills me <coughs> is that... The human body is something to fear. Yeah. Especially a woman's body. 
is something to fear, to control, to, to cover up. And I'm sorry, but if your son is, is having like erections in class because somebody has a cap sleeve on, the problem is not with her. It's not with her. Your son has problems. But I mean, yeah, it's just like the, there is a wild obsession in the West with what women do or don't do with their bodies. Mm-hmm. And we like to act like we're immune to it and that we are part of some sort of modern you know, conception of how, like, you know, of, of it, women's independence over their bodies. We're, you know, we're not Quebec. Um, it, as ex, you know, we're not police, like the rest of Canada thinks, you know, we're not Quebec. And we're also more quote unquote, still accepting or civilized in places that do have, we, you know, women um, engaging in, in, in wearing modest uh, attire and headscarves and, and whatever else. And it's just like, just such a bullshit notion because like, we, we patrol women's bodies all the time, all the fucking time. Mm-hmm. We are not immune to to that. We just do it in ways that we couch it in language around fit and professionalism and whatever else. But we are absolutely engaging in the same exact damn thing. Ah! Um, but this sexualization of women's bodies happens, like, at such a young age. Someone posted on Twitter today, oh, we talk about, like, not sexualizing children. Meanwhile, there's, like, a photo. Someone had a photo of a onesie for a, a girl that said... Not dating ever, or not allowed to date ever. Meanwhile, the boys was like, "Oh, you know, ladies, come and like give me kisses." Da 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 da. da. I'm a ladies' man, which like fuck right off. Oh my god. All right, so I want to talk about something that's happening in Georgia. Um, So the uh, Georgian government is um, basically very close to passing an anti-abortion bill. So the legislation, which is HB 481, would criminalize abortion once there is a detectable heartbeat, which can happen as early as six weeks into a pregnancy, and actually before many people even know that they're pregnant. Um, But um, in response to this legislation, Almost 100 local film and TV workers signed onto a letter addressed to Sony, Netflix, Disney, Marvel, HBO, and Universal Pictures calling on the industry giants to join them in opposing this this bill. Um, And the letter references how uh, in 2016, when the same legislature, Republican majority, attempted to enact a discriminatory Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Um, where film studios were able to stop the former governor, Nathan Deal, from signing the bill into law by saying that they would pull projects from the state if the bill was signed. And uh, these industry um, uh, employees are now saying that we need the studios to do the same thing again as employers to hundreds of women and people who are able to reproduce. It is essential that your employees are able to manage their bodies and have the ability to make critical life decisions on their own. And so more than 40 high-profile celebrities have signed onto this, including Amy Schumer, Gabrielle Union, Uzo Aduba, Ben Stiller, Sean Penn, Mia Farrow, Colin Hanks, and Amber Tamlin. And uh, it's also got the support of former gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams, who says, quote, Georgia is the only international film hub threatening to limit a woman's access to care. And this is just one of many 
um, pieces of legislation across America um, that are trying to enact these very restrictive abortion laws. Uh, I think Mississippi is going through something similar. I think there were a few in 2018 that had similar timelines. And I think it's important to recognize that six weeks is not a long time. You know, mm-hmm. um, that can mean two missed periods and a missed period can happen for illness, for stress, for any sort of physical changes in a person's body. And that also makes the assumption, like this law makes the assumption that women are having, or people who have periods have regular cycles. Um, There are a number of factors that can affect a person's cycle, including stress, including um, their weight, including uh, genetics, including their own hormone therapy, therapy, including their birth control. Like someone who's on a pill is probably going to have more regular periods, whereas someone with an IUD may just get them irregularly and not, you know, if there was a period of time with my IUD where I didn't have a period for like six months at a time, but I wasn't pregnant. Um, And so like, that's just the way women's bodies work or, people who have female parts genetically work. Um, and like, it's just so ignorant about like the science and the facts of, you know, menstruation and periods and just so, so, so stupid. Um, I do wonder, you know, what sort of responses would get from the GOP in Georgia because, you know, it's going to be like, oh, well, those coastal elites, those, famous people with all their money trying to tell us what to do down here in Georgia, except those people are also contributing to your economy. I was just about to say, you mean the ones that are giving jobs, jobs, jobs that you're probably like campaigning on? Yeah. Like those coastal elites? Yeah. Because it's not like you were doing so (laughs) swell otherwise. Like, uh, like Atlanta is booming because, um, number one, the cost of living is just a lot lower um, number two, there's a huge diverse uh, populace in Atlanta. Um, number three, uh, probably some sort of tax incentives, I'm sure. Sure. But the point is, is that with um, companies that come and invest in your state, they come. What comes with them are more sort of at least centrist ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so what do you want? Do you want the companies or do you, do you want the companies and jobs or do you want to be able to control women's bodies? You can't have both. Like uh, yeah. You just can't have both. Yeah. I mean, I don't love the idea that corporations can come into a community and, like, dictate the terms of, like, what public policy is and, like, on principle, but I do like the notion that an industry gets to set what like a certain labor standard or health and safety standards sure. are. And I think like that's an important distinction to make because I don't want to conflate those two things. Um, like not yes. all policy or lobbying or whatever um, or corporate intervention is, is good. And frankly, in 99% of cases, it's necessarily bad. Uh, but when you're looking at it from the perspective of workers and in some sort of a collective action, and here you're talking about actors who are the labor and workforce. It's not even, and it's not even actors. It's all the people who work on the production. Well, but that's what yeah. I mean. Like, some of the folks you, you like, are, 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 like, laborers. They're not the corporate entity. Mm-hmm. I think that's different. Yeah. And I think what you're, and hopefully we would see is the, like, you know, different guilds kind of intervening and taking this issue up, um, like, from a union perspective. Mm-hmm. 
um, and, and, and applying the pressure on uh, Georgia in that way. Yeah, it's really interesting because like there are a lot of very popular shows happening in Atlanta. It's, you know, Atlanta is a city. So obviously like Donald Glover's Atlanta. Um, but it's also like a city that's used in a lot of shows because it's very nondescript. Like it was in Baby Driver. It's uh, off the top of my head. That's like all I can think of. But like clearly, you know, it's what there's one, two, four, six different production companies here that are the letter was sent to and like that's not an insignificant amount of work um and i'm sure that a lot of the people who are working on these productions are actually local georgians and so you know i just would really hate to see the republicans kind of misconstrue this whole effort into something like completely i mean sure yes it's partisan but it's also like an economic debate and they can't it's hard for them to say that it's unfair because it's an economic debate, whereas they have the same opportunity to make similar economic debates in Washington and, and in legislatures across the country as like formal lobbying. So um, I, my rant and receipts is going to be about an issue that we had talked about two or three episodes ago, mostly about language and how journalists use language, especially nowadays to um, describe racial situations and stories. The um, Associated Press style book got a major update uh, on Friday. And uh, if you don't know what that is, it's, um, it's the arbiter of language for American journalists. And since most newsrooms don't have the resources to develop their own style manuals, it's become sort of like the gold standard of um, journalistic guidance in terms of language. So Friday's updated entries on race-related issues are basically an acknowledgement of uh, the subject of race growing in prominence in American journalism. So this new guidance offers journalists clarity and precision as they frame the news for their audiences. So Two major changes uh, that they recommend was, number one, um, hyphenated Americans are a relic. Asian Americans, African Americans, Mexican Americans, um, Native Americans are a relic. The other change that was major that they made is something that we talk about on this podcast all the time. When an incident is racist, journalists should say so. Mm. And I want to just say that Canada and the Canadian media has made it an art at describing racist situations, white supremacy, and, and writing like gobs of articles on far-right politics uh, without using the word racist or racism in any of them but racially charged yes and racially motivated um so the hyphenated american uh is something that we've all sort of kind of used as as a politically correct term to describe people's race i didn't realize that it's um it's it's a practice that dates back to the 19th century as a way to distinguish immigrants as other and has been a common microaggression for more than a century. Hmm. 
what AP also recommends is that when a subject's heritage is relevant, it's important to respect the source's preference. So someone who is Asian American might be more accurately described as Chinese American. Someone who's black might want to be identified as Haitian Canadian. I always personally like to default to what people want to be called unless they want to be called white when they're not. That's basically where I draw the line. Anyway, race is central to many headlines, many issues. You know, I think I think Christchurch is a bit of is yet another watershed moment in how we how, how we develop a discourse around race and about and around um, racial supremacy. And um, but also AP has basically said that newsrooms need to stop peddling um, describing actions as racist. So most newsrooms have hedged with language such as racially motivated, like we just talked about. And the AP has basically said the term racism and racist can be used in broad references or in quotations to describe the hatred of a race or assertion of the superiority of one race over the other, which is basically the definition of racism. Anyway, so um, a key portion of the entry on race-related coverage says, quote, identifying people by race and record, reporting on actions that have to do with race often go beyond simple style questions challenging journalists to think broadly about racial issues before having to make decisions on specific situations and stories. So journalists have long, AP has long given journalists latitude and judgment, but this year's updates note that race is often an irrelevant factor and cautions journalists to be clear about the role of race before they include racial identifiers. Anyway, all this to say that, um, the style book also has a new entry cautioning against calling someone a black or a white. I'm sorry, what? So don't use racial terms as nouns, people like the blacks, because the blacks, I have questions. I'm if sorry, hear, the blacks? The blacks. I like, so whenever I hear that, I'm like, I'm like, are we burning crosses now? What the fuck? You know what I mean? <laughs> Stick with the adjective, people. Stick with the adjective. <laughs> Say no to the noun. <laughs> oh my God. I don't know that I have anything to say to that. No, I think it's I think it's interesting because, you know, for so long, um, this was particularly popular, you know, in the nineties and the early two thousands where we would refer to all black people as African-Americans. And then like for a while I was like, they're Canadian though. Um, yeah. It, it also like makes the assumption that all black people are from Africa, which is absolutely not true. Yeah. Um, and it's just very, very bizarre. So like, it makes total sense to me that we're gonna, that the AP is trying to like phase out this like hyphenated thing. And like, like, and then Canadian news places started calling us African Canadians. And I'm just like, no, 
What? What? No, thank you. I'm black. Yeah, but like, white people don't like calling black people black. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's all for their own comfort. Absolutely. The idea that they don't see color and don't want to refer to color because color is what racism is rooted in in, uh, distinctions around color. Yeah. Um, and so they would rather not acknowledge it at all. Yeah. And the shift to African American is just a, you know, a way to kind of absolve yourself of thinking about um, otherness and showing that you have a at least a cursory awareness that someone has a different sort of background without even asking them or actually knowing anything about mm-hmm. them. And then just sort of like being straight, it's, I mean, it's extremely like presumptuous to, to say. Um, and then, and then while still denying the privilege of being white and ignoring um, what it is to live as a black person, um, which is very different than living as someone who's an African American, mm-hmm. actually someone from Africa who also is an American. <laughs> yeah. Um, exactly. Would you call Africans? Like, yeah. What? Yeah. I don't, you know, the fuck. Yeah. Everyone go read Americana or whatever. Uh, Shamanda's. Uh, oh, is it? Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. That one has a lot of good reflections on the expression of African American and who is African and who is American and who is Black yeah. in America and, and what that identity means. Interesting. Yeah, it's a great book. Good recommendation. All, All right. Looking out. Oh, I just wanted to say before we leave that we just want to note that today is the Trans Day of Visibility. Mm-hmm. And um, so we just want to make a note of that. Um, and yeah. We love you. We care. Yeah. We give a shit. Yeah. We give a shit about you. Fuck those serfs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. They need to go. Like, like they yeah. bye okay bye just bye okay <laughs> <laughs> um don't forget massages of the week comes out on friday oh. and you can get it then in the meantime get social with us you can find us on twitter at bad and bitchy on instagram at bad and bitchy pod facebook slash bad and be podcast and email us bad and be pod at gmail.com bye, bye. Do you have color? Oh, that should be Yeah, I got shit. I got shit. I don't need a plate. I'm fine eating out of the thing. Okay. Do you want I ate fancy. Yeah. Do you have a bowl? I do. Would you... Eating out of a bowl is the best. I, if I could you know eat, what? eat out of a bowl. I try to eat out of yeah, bowls. Yeah, me too. I definitely try to eat a steak out of a bowl. Big mistake. <laughs> you know. Those are mine. Good yeah. boys. All right. What do we got? Uh, yeah, I feel like that's okay. Erica. I it's think fine. that's mine. Yeah. Okay. I mean, we have, we have plastic forks. I'm sorry. Why would you want plastic Actually, I'll have a spoon.
I also need a spoon. I was thinking that. I also need a spoon. I'm was sorry. there a sauce in there? This is yeah, very sorry. ethnic right now. I'm kind of like. Thank you. Because literally, I was thinking, hmm, maybe I should get a spoon. I, heard, I always put a spoon. spoon and a bowl. <laughs> because I am a child. I don't need a bowl. Oh, right. You're not bowling. I forgot. Here. Thank you. Here you go. Thank you. Very ethnic. Guyanese people, like the masses, I guess you would say, um, eat with spoons. Like they'll eat their rice with a spoon. Fucking love rice with a spoon. Why would you not eat rice with a spoon? That just doesn't make sense to me. How could you eat rice with a fork? You're missing so many little ones. <laughs> it's, it's true. Think about it. Oh, oh this smells awesome. Oh, yes. Yes! This is our gas bag. <laughs> Get down over there. I'm just saying. <laughs> mm. mm -hmm. Even when somebody orders something, you're like, damn it. I should have done that. That's exactly what's happening right now. Listen, number of times I order food at a restaurant. And the guy I'm dating at the time was like, fuck, I should have ordered that, is at nearly 100%. Yeah. Mmm. Mmm. These vegetables are better than expected. That's not what we have really right now. We have something different. Nipsey Hussle has died after being shot? What? What? Who is that? What? Who Sorry. Thought... By who? Mm. Oh shit! It just Damn broke. Nipsey Hustle had a mixtape called I think it's Mailbox Money. Brilliant.